0: The more you learn, the more you realise there is still to learn.
1: This is Sparking Connections, a podcast where two education enthusiasts teach each other about their respective fields of study. My name is Kimberly Wardle, and I have a degree in microbiology from the University of Surrey.
2: And
0: my name is Esme Beaumont, and I'm currently studying for an MPhil in English Studies at the University of Cambridge. Hello, hello, and welcome to episode 15 of Sparking Connections, which is a literature episode. It is going to be about a short story by Jorge Luis Borges called Tlon Ukbar Orbis Tertius. Yes, given that that is a made up language, I'm not going to worry about my pronunciation. Mm -hmm. (laughs) So shall we get straight into it then?
1: Yeah, just a heads up to everybody. I did share the PDF of the actual story on last Times episode, Mm -hmm. but I will also link it in this current episode show notes on the website. So if you want to read it, it's free. You can do so on the website. Yep. Pause here. Read. (laughs) Read the story. It's very short. Yeah. (laughs) So,
0: Jorge Luis Borges. I think I'm. I think that's close to the right pronunciation. But he is Argentinian. Mm -hmm. He was born in Buenos Aires. He was born in 1899. Later moved to Switzerland. Uh, That Mm -hmm. was when he was 15. In 1914, and he studied at the Collège de Genève, Geneva. Um, nice. <laughs> but he returned to Argentina in 1921 when he was 22, and began to publish his poems and essays in surrealist literary journals. So he grew up reading all kinds of stuff in different languages, and that kind of thing. We won't go too deep into his sort of biography. I'm just giving some basic facts. But that sort of thing is very obvious mm-hmm. when you read this story. And everything else in the collection that I, that I photocopied that particular story from, called Labyrinths. So in 1955, he was appointed director of the National Public Library and professor of English literature at the University of Buenos Aires. By the age of 55, he was completely blind, oh. which some scholars have suggested might have helped him to create more innovative uh, literary symbols. Mm. That's debated, but it's an interesting idea. In the 1960s, his work was published widely in translation in the US and Europe. Uh, he was fluent in several languages. He grew up fluent in English and Spanish and received the first Formentor Prize in 1961 and the Jerusalem Prize in 1972. 1970- so those are both literary prizes.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: The version of the story that we'll be looking at is a translation by James E. Irby from the Penguin, Penguin Modern Classics 1964 edition of Labyrinths, which is a collection of his short stories and essays. So if you're looking at the PDF on the website, that will have the same page numbers as we're looking at, mm-hmm. which might be helpful. So uh, two main interesting things from James Woodall's biography of Borges. Firstly, that he was homeschooled until the age of nine, and much of his education came from his father's library, and he was a precocious reader. Secondly, that he developed a phobia of mirrors. Interesting. He was afraid of being repeated. Seeing his own body multiplied, it sort of half comes up in in this story. Yeah. I, I just thought it was interesting.
1: I mean, to be fair, have you you've, like? I'm sure everyone's looked in mirrors that are like facing each other, and then you stand in between them, and you can see like repeat of yourself like over and over. It's, mm. it's weird. I can I respect yeah. it. <laughs> <laughs> so
0: the story in question, Ucba, Orbus Tertius, was first published in the Argentinian literary journal. Sir, saw, I'm not sure how you pronounce that, S U R anyway, mm. in May 1940. The postscript to the story, dated 1947, is intended to be anachronistic. It's set seven years in the future. Right. So, okay, what was your initial impression of this story?
1: Okay, so it's when I when I, I first know. started reading it, I didn't like it. I was I, I was so <laughs> lost that I was like, How am I supposed to understand what the hell is going on? Because they were just mm-hmm. I don't know, it kind of talks about Talon and Akbar and like all that stuff as if like, oh yeah, that's common knowledge and I was like, I <laughs> have none of this common knowledge. But then as it got on to talk about um like the penny analogy kind of confused me a little bit, but then it went on mm-hmm. to talk about um, some of the other things. And I was like, oh, yeah, yeah, I could get behind this. Like, yeah, this makes complete <laughs> sense. So, yeah, I, I started off hating it. And then as I read it more, I was getting more into it. And, and um, I think it's definitely something you could read a couple of times and still be mm-hmm. still find it like new bits to understand and stuff like that. So yeah, I enjoyed it. Yeah.
0: Good. I've I've read it several times mm. and there are still parts that I don't fully understand. Right. And that, that's, fu- that's fun, I think. Mm. I think you can get the gist of the story and enjoy it and then reread it and sort of there are more different, more ideas to sink your teeth into. You're like, you're not going to exhaust all of the possibilities right. from one reading, you know? So it's interesting what you said about how he talks about certain things as if they're common knowledge because there is something interesting happening in this story with reality and fiction. Mm. There's a critic, I believe it's Alan, Alan White, um, I'll include it in the bibli- bibliography, who wrote an entire essay that I remember reading uh, about a year ago, uh, in which he looks, among other things, looks into which of the references are real and which are fake. That right. is, which people and places and texts are real People, places and texts which are sort of represented as they are in reality and which are real but sort of made fictional mm-hmm. and which ones are just straight up made up now i do not remember and have not had time to look into well i've had neither the time nor the inclination to look into every single one and to be honest if you're interested in that that's the kind of treasure hunt that you're going to want to go on for yourself and it's not fun if i just sit here and list them all right um So I will acknowledge that that is is something that is out there. If you would like to go go and look into precisely which references are real and which aren't, then have fun. Um, (laughs) But I think it's interesting that a critic would even have the inclination to do that in the first place because you wouldn't with everything, you know? Mm. If you're reading a fantasy novel and there's a reference to London, you don't necessarily. Well, I wouldn't anyway. Feel the urge to go and figure out precisely which aspects of London are real and which bits have been fictionalized. You know, right. but there is something about this story that did make me look up a few names. That did make me mm. read that essay, for example, because yeah, there is something about it that makes you want to. That makes you want to know. That makes it feel real. It's like yeah. the boundary between the text and the real world is slightly permeable.
1: It's like any of those names that were listed, you could totally pass those off to me as a real thing. And I'd be like, mm. yep, okay, seems legit. Like, I'm... <laughs> you know, it it doesn't... The fact, the way that it was, all the things were described, I was just like, mm. yeah, okay, yeah. This is, like, based in science. I can totally agree with this. <laughs> <laughs> Fair enough.
0: Yeah. Um. So we can discuss that further later. Mm-hmm. I will... Mention a few names now just to give you an idea. So, Ukbar is fictional, mm-hmm. both in real life and in the world of the story. Tlön is fictional within Uqbar.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: So, that's sort of two levels of sort of fictional places. But there are also real places mentioned. So, Armenia, um, various other places that I place
1: names. And now I look at them, I'm not quite sure how to pronounce them. So Many stands. But there are several places. <laughs> yes, yes. Yes. Uh, <laughs> one, one beginning with a K that's not Kazakhstan.
0: <laughs> yeah, Korasan, cor- cor- something like that. Something like that. <laughs> Various real people, so obviously Borges, both as the author and as the first person protagonist. Mm-hmm. C- Cesares. again, I don't know how to pronounce that, but he is an Argentinian fiction writer, friend and fre- frequent collaborator of Borges. Okay. So he is obviously mentioned in the story, he is a real person.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: Apparently the unnamed Heresiarch I think that's how you say that word, of uh, Uqba, is Al-Mukhana, a Persian prophet from the 70- 700s. Interesting. Um, various other writers and philosophers, for example, Bertrand Russell, Thomas de Quincy, like those are all real people.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: But, but there are also fictional people. So Herbert Ash, Silas Haslam, um, Ezra Buckley, these people are fake. Mm-hmm. Um, in some cases inspired by real people, but they're fictional. Interesting. So that is something that I think is interesting. It's less interesting to discuss, in my opinion, precisely who is real and who is fake. It's more interesting to acknowledge that there are both real and fake people and to discuss right. what that does for the story.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: So do you have any ideas? Do you have any thoughts? Because it's going to be different, different for every reader, obviously.
1: Um, well, for me, I guess having real people makes it all the more believable so that when you put fake people in, you're like, oh, well, they must be real people too. If, if I know this, mm-hmm. because you're not going to know every name of every person in every story that has real people in it. So mm-hmm. if you recognise one real person, then for all the others, you'll assume, oh, everybody's in this story is real, so this must be real. Mm-hmm. And I think that's important for the part where they're like, if you think something's real or if enough people think something's real, then it's going to be real. Mm. And like, when you're, because I liked the, when you're looking for something and someone else is also looking for something and they don't know that you found it, they'll also find it. Yeah, yeah, that's an interesting idea. So like, just basically all that stuff that's playing with your mind, like, there's too much other stuff playing with your mind for you to really dig deep and think, hmm, maybe this person isn't real.
2: So right. kind of
1: having real people mixed with imaginary people kind of gives it a le- level of credibility that if you don't look too closely, it it kind of feels... More authentic.
0: Yeah. Yeah, I like that idea. I think that is... Yeah, definitely. Mm. Effective at seeming authentic. Mm. To me, it gives it more... It, it makes it easier to suspend your disbelief, I suppose. Right. You go into it knowing this is a collection of short stories, but as you're reading, you start to feel like you're reading an essay or an autobiography mm. or something. It doesn't feel quite so fictional, which means that the stakes feel higher, yeah. I guess. But it also makes you... Even when you're sort of subconsciously aware that this is definitely fiction, you're still sort of applying what you're reading to real life in a way that you might not if you're reading something that is wholeheartedly fiction Mm -hmm. with no suspension of disbelief, I suppose. You know, if you're... It's different from... Oh, I suppose it's a little bit like watching, I don't know, Criminal Minds or any of those TV shows set in hospitals that
1: I don't watch. Yes, because we watch TV. (laughs) Yes, we, I totally watch the television. <laughs> we both own televisions, and we watch them on the regular. <laughs>
0: yeah, totally. But no, having not watched any of these shows, I can't say for sure. But mm. the impression I get is that there there are elements that are based in real life, right. and then elements that are completely fictional. But it means that when sometimes you'll be talking to someone and they'll say, um, "Oh, I think this," you know, "I think um, this illness is like this," or at least that's what it was like in. What's the name of a hospital show? Whatever. Uh, It's like in that show. mm, Grey's Anatomy. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, there you go. Grey's Anatomy. Oh, it's like that episode of Grey's Anatomy. Even though you know that it's fiction, there is still, there's enough verisimilitude that you apply it to real life anyway. Right. Or like cop shows. There's a lot of interesting um, stuff being written about how shows like Brooklyn Nine-Nine are acting as sort of propaganda Mm. for sort of... Police and like the system of policing Mm -hmm. and affecting how people view that and affecting how they criticize it, whether they criticize it, whether they consider the police system to be something they can criticize. You know, like that's a really interesting idea that it isn't that you believe what you're watching, it's that you apply it to real life, even subconsciously, Mm -hmm. which is, of course, a key aspect of this story, right? That Tlon is created as a fiction. It, like they know it is fiction, there is no pretense about it being real. But as more and more people read about it, it becomes real, yeah, because it's, it's a world of ideas. And once enough people read an idea and start to agree with it, it, it becomes an idea in the real world, mm-hmm. you know. Mm-hmm. I will point out this quote from a linguist called Peter Stockwell, which we will get into again, we'll get into this a little bit later, but it's to sort of sum up what we've just been talking about. He says, the mode of autobiography diminishes deictic distance and creates a single one-step vector across a text world boundary. So there's some annoying linguistics terms there. (laughs) Um, We'll get into deictic later, but it's essentially words relating to um, where you are in space and time. Right. So essentially, to diminish deictic distance is to sort of collapse the space between here and there if here is me sitting at my desk right now and there is in the text Mm
2: -hmm.
0: for example it's collapsing that distance right right and creates a single one-step vector across a text world boundary that is the only step that you need to take between the text of an autobiography and the real world is that it's something happening to somebody else in a book as of is something happening to some something that has happened to someone else, as opposed to something that's happening to you right now. Right. As opposed to a sort of multiple steps, which would be, you know, the world of Harry Potter. It, it the, the steps are it's in a book. It isn't happening to me right now. It is happening to um, a fictional person. It is happening in a fictional place. Mm-hmm. Right. That's like three steps. Yeah. So yes, we'll get we'll get into that more later. The next thing that I wanted to talk to you about, which I think is possibly. The aspect of this that really interested me when I first read this several years ago now, like I still remember where I was when I read this, <laughs> and I really like this story, the idea of subjective idealism, which is the belief system of the people of Tlon. I don't think Bohas ever calls it that as such. Maybe he does, I don't remember. He definitely uses the word idealism a lot, mm. but this is how it's referred to on Wikipedia, for example, when you're looking for key terms and things which is a fusion of phenomenalism and idealism. So I am not a philosopher. This is necessarily simplified. So the basics of phenomenalism are that physical objects cannot be said to exist in themselves, but only as perceptual phenomena or sensory stimuli situated in space and time. For example, an apple doesn't exist in and of itself. As a person, you perceive roundness, redness, crunchiness, um, tastiness or grossness, depending on whether you like apples, <laughs> etc. Right? Mm-hmm. When I ask you to describe a tree, you're going to describe green, um, rough bark, tall or short, or um, you know, branches are narrow or wide, that sort of thing. Mm-hmm. You can't ever perceive the real sort of essence of something you can't perceive a tree without perceiving the bark and the leaves and all of the sort of qualities that make it up Mm -hmm. yeah which leads some philosophers such as George Berkeley to say that therefore it doesn't exist in and of
1: itself Mm, I think I've heard that before
0: yeah, it's a fairly famous idea. It's it's not quite sort of, I think, therefore I am. It's mm. more like, I perceive, therefore this thing is here. Mm. But it isn't that it exists, it's that I am perceiving all of the various qualities that
1: make it up. You can only see its components, therefore the thing that make, is make, made by the components doesn't exist, because you're only seeing components.
0: Yeah, like right now, we're not in the same room, I can only hear your voice.
1: So As far as I know... I am only voice. <laughs>
0: Yeah, as far as I know, according to Barclay, you don't exist. There mm-hmm. is no being called Kim. There is just a voice that is coming out of my headphones right now.
1: Oh, I remember the context. It was in um, an English lesson and he, mm-hmm. the teacher that we had made someone stand outside the room and then come back in and we had to talk about whether he existed when he left the room because we couldn't see him in the class.
2: Ah,
0: See, I don't remember that, but I do think I, I can figure out which teacher that yeah, was yeah 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 <laughs> yes yeah exactly i think that was probably in relation to descartes if i'm remembering probably. The types of discussions we had probably. um but it's a similar sort of idea that is you know according to the according to phenomenalism like it isn't so much like if you can't hear it it doesn't exist it's more like it doesn't exist you can just hear a sound or you can just see red okay you you can see colors and you you can see all of the qualities but you can't prove that there is a there is a thing that has those qualities Mm -hmm. you just know that the qualities that you know that you are perceiving these qualities
1: yeah this combination of qualities makes a thing
0: yeah yeah an apple is the word that we use for for the the experience of perceiving
1: Mm
2: -hmm.
0: redness and crunchiness and so on so idealism denies the knowability of the non-mental or the existence of the non-mental. Mm-hmm. Idealism, in in this case, is essentially, I can only prove that my own mind exists. I guess you would consider that to be the sort of Descartes thing. Mm-hmm. I think therefore I am, right? I can't prove to you that I'm currently sitting in front of a computer, um, in front of a window, etc. I can only tell you that I am perceiving a computer and a window and a right. microphone and whatever. Th- the, the thing that those two things have in common is that there is no objective reality that what we call reality is completely dependent on the minds that perceive it?
2: Mm-hmm.
0: So what Borges does is take that idea and imagine a world in which everyone believes that. It's not about it being true or false. Just everyone thinks that it's a thing, yes, this is how everybody thinks mm-hmm. this is this is taken for granted in the same way as we take for granted the complete opposite, right? Right. The way that we speak in real life is based on the assumption that things exist. Mm -hmm. That I can say, this is a desk. And um, out my window over there, that's a tree. And that these things exist. And the way I talk about them, the way I talk about them reflects the fact that I believe wholeheartedly that they completely exist. Mm -hmm. And it's really difficult to talk about, as you heard me stumble through an explanation of (laughs) phenomenalism, because our language is not designed for talking about things that don't exist. right? <laughs> so Borges imagines a world where this is just taken for granted mm. that we don't believe things exist and that we only, the only thing we believe exists is our sort of mental perceptions and says, okay, what does language look and sound like in that case? Do people talk if they don't talk about things that really exist? And that ends up being really interesting That's something that I really, really like. It's possibly my favourite thing about this story (laughs) is... Sort of reading the little example that he gives and extrapolating from there about what language could be like, Mm -hmm. you know, on page 32. There are no nouns in Toulon's conjectural ersprach from which the present languages and the dialects are derived. There are impersonal verbs modified by monosyllabic suffixes or prefixes with an adverbial value. For example, there is no word corresponding to the word moon, but there is a verb which in English would be to moon or to moonate. The moon rose above the water. Is literally upward beyond the on streaming. It mooned.
1: <laughs> um, <laughs> it yes, it mooned. <laughs> yeah,
0: but because you can't say the moon is in the sky because you don't know for sure that there is a moon in the sky. All you know is that you are seeing the. See, it's hard. It's hard to uh, mm. put into words. I suppose it's a little bit like saying it. It is raining, as a like we we say it is raining, as in like i am experiencing rain as opposed to there is rain yeah is that you you kind of end up having to phrase it like that like it is cloudy as opposed to over there that thing right there is a cloud right <laughs> like imagine talk oh okay imagine phrasing everything in terms of like i'm cold i am cold or i am hot versus like the weather is it hot. is yeah so you're having to phrase everything like you know it's cold. Um, it is looking at things around my room. It is desking. It is computering. Like it is doing. You know, I am perceiving deskness.
1: <laughs> I don't. I don't like that.
0: <laughs> no, it's weird.
1: <laughs> I think I read this whole bit with my eyes like slightly unfocused because I was like, <laughs> I don't know what's going on, and it makes me uncomfortable. <laughs> <laughs> See,
0: I think. Yeah, I, this is the kind of thing I really love thinking about. Mm-hmm. I, like, I can I can so clearly remember sitting. Um, I was camping at the time, sitting in a field, holding this book, just going, "Oh my god,
1: <laughs> <laughs> I love it."
0: So apparently, what I just described applies to the languages of the southern hemisphere in the northern hemisphere the prime unit is not the verb but the monosyllabic adjective
1: yes so
0: they do not say moon but rather a round airy light on dark or pale orange of the sky mm-hmm. or any other such combination so instead of i am perceiving a tree it would be i am perceiving tall green and brown
1: i like that one much more <laughs> yes it it is that that is easier to conceptualize mm-hmm. <laughs> and i also think that i would like to to have that as my the way that I speak (laughs) really why is that I don't know I just think it would be funny to to describe things to people instead of give them a name because yeah then you wouldn't have the issue of being like oh what's that thing called I'd be like yes it is (laughs) square square ground object that spits out paper with ink on and you'd be like (laughs) it would be more complicated than that Mm. because it would be something close
0: like a printer would be something more along the lines of sort of yeah square dark object oh but you couldn't say a fitting ver- out rectangular white with black yeah yeah right like it's i like that,
1: that. <laughs> i think that's funny
0: because it, it, uh borges goes on and suggests that then um people an object would then be composed of like you've got an object or as we would think of it as, as an object composed of adjectives and then you just keep adding adjectives and then you can end up with a poem that is just one long word full of adjectives, and ah, oh, it's so cool. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I like that. I
1: think that's, I think that's good. So
0: yeah, I really love this idea. There's a sentence from the preface to this collection. The writer says, "Often a paradox that ought to bo- to bowl us over does not strike us in the abstract form given it by philosophers. Borges makes a concrete reality out of it, which I think is exactly what he's doing here." Right? You could sort of sit and say. Oh, I wonder what it would be like to take Barclay's idealism and apply it to language. That would be interesting, wouldn't it? What Borges does is take that and turn it into something that we can really think about.
2: Mm.
0: Because, like, you know, you can debate idealism all you want, it's just not going to be as interesting as a made up world in which everyone just believes it. It's a little bit like you can take your sort of thought experiment, it's like taking the thought experiment and turning it into a story makes it feel more real and more urgent and more sort of applicable to the way that we think about things. Mm
2: -hmm.
0: You know, like, I mean, that's the point of a thought experiment in the first place, I guess. It takes something abstract and says, okay, how would we apply it to a situation? But thought experiments have so many necessary parameters. You think about, like, the trolley problem. Mm. It's like, you know, would you kill one person to save four? And it's like, yeah, but... No, because I wouldn't do that at all. I would go and do this other thing. Like, why are these people on the tracks in the first place? Why can't we stop the train? You know. Yeah.
1: Well, um, why can't the people see the train coming?
0: <laughs> yeah. Why? Why? Who? What kind of world do we live in where there's a supervillain that, who's tying people to train tracks? But like, not all in the same place. Like, it's a slightly <laughs> inept supervillain of what's happening. Um, <laughs> which and so. Obviously the philosopher putting forward these ideas would say, No, 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 that's not the point. The point mm-hmm. is, like you have to accept the parameters in order to to do that. And that's kind of what you're doing with the story, that the parameters of this of this story are just so much further away. Like, this is a sandbox rather than like yeah. one sandcastle. <laughs> right, right. Yeah, I I I think this idea is really fascinating. <laughs> It's funny, I've been listening to a podcast called Lingthusiasm,
2: mm-hmm.
0: and it's it's about linguistics. There's a lot of this sort of discussion about features that occur in other languages, but not in English, or features we have in English that don't occur in other languages, and how that affects what you say, and like what you can and can't say, and then potentially how you think. Obviously, linguistic determinism is not like... Like, there's debate about that, but Mm. there are languages with evidentiality, for example. Right. Where there are prefixes or suffixes or, like, particles or aspects of the grammar that encode how you know the information you're imparting. In the same way as when something happened is baked into the the grammar of English. Mm. When you're talking in English, you can't talk about an event without, in some way mentioning when it happens yeah like the tense is in-
1: implicit yeah
0: like unless we're talking about like we've got infinitives like to walk but I can't just say to walk I have to say I am walking now or I, want I to was walk. walking yeah yeah I want to walk or I will walk or something you can't just have if I say I walk in the most basic sense that means I'm doing it right now watch me while I walk yeah like it's You're telling somebody that this is happening now or in the future. I'm doing it right this second. Yeah. And so some languages don't have that. You can talk about verbs or you can use verbs and talk about actions without any time attached. But then some languages like some Tibetan languages apparently have evidentiality. So I can't say Kim has blonde hair. I have to say essentially I like Kim has blonde hair and I know because I've seen it. like <laughs> i'm not sure i don't know how, i don't know how to sort of like, shorten that in a way to sort of emulate the way the grammar would work but i literally cannot just say kim has blonde hair i have to say i saw that kim has blonde hair or kim told me that kim has blonde hair
1: that's really interesting like you have to have, you have to prove it you
0: just have to have proof exactly and so you can say i'm you know i'm sure there are ways that, in which You could say, I think that, or I assume Mm. that, or whatever, but that it's all baked into the grammar. You can't just make an assertion without saying how you know it. And so this feels like a much more extreme version of that, like not of evidentiality, but of a language that has a feature that is completely different from English. That's just like, like the way that you think affects the language, but also the language affects the way that you think. So you talked about the the bit with the coins. Mm -hmm. On page 35, a philosopher puts forward this paradox, which is, I'll read this to you. On Thursday, X crosses a deserted road and loses nine copper coins. On Thursday, Y finds in the road four coins, somewhat rusted by Wednesday's rain. On Friday, Z discovers three coins in the road. On Friday morning, X finds two coins in the corridor of his house. (laughs) The Heresiarch would deduce from this story the reality, i.e. the continuity, of the nine coins which were recovered. That is, that they are the same nine coins. Mm. It is absurd, he affirmed, to imagine that four of the coins have not existed between Tuesday and Thursday. Three coins between Tuesday and Friday afternoon, two between Tuesday and Friday morning. It is logical to think that they have existed, at least in some secret way, hidden from the comprehension of men, at every moment of these three periods and then it says the language of tlon resists the formulation of this paradox yeah that is in exactly the same way as i was struggling to describe idealism and phenomenalism you know i was struggling to describe pure phenomena without referring to an object that has those qualities that would cause mm-hmm. that phenomena the language of tlon makes it really really difficult to even suggest that something could exist outside of our perception of
2: it right
0: And the idea of just saying the coins outside of any human perception is like what you'd have to it would require many sentences and some people still might not even understand because right. you're just complete it's just not expressible in your language
1: yeah i i found that part very difficult to wrap my head around and even still now i'm sitting here and i'm like <laughs> yes Hmm interesting <laughs> I kind of get it but I just love the f- the idea because is it that they're saying that they think the coins are the same but they can't be certain okay so the philosopher has said if somebody loses some coins and then
0: later on finds some coins in the same place that they lost the first
1: coin you can't tell the them maybe it's
0: logical <laughs> yeah he's saying maybe it's logical to think that they're the same coins And everyone else is going. What do you mean the same coin? You don't. (laughs) What do you mean coins? There's just a perception of coins. I I I am perceiving some coins, and then there are, and then I am not perceiving coins. Mm.
1: What what are you talking about? The coins, the same (laughs) coin. Or in the northern hemisphere, the bronze-coloured round things that are on (laughs) the ground. (laughs) Yeah, I am perceiving. Yeah, (laughs) what
0: in my hand right now is bronze roundness, and then it's gone. And then later on, I have... I Later on, again, I have bronze roundness. What do you mean? It's the
1: same bronze roundness. It couldn't possibly... I haven't seen it for that whole time, so it couldn't possibly... Yeah. Be. I just love how they appeared in that guy's hallway. Like, yeah, all right. <laughs> yeah. Like that, I just... I got caught up on that too. And I like... I just... I don't know. I liked how he d- described the... These coins are rusted from Wednesday's rain. It's like, how do you know that? Like... Exactly. he said the yeah,
0: his um sort of detractors say they denounced the treacherous circumstance somewhat rusted by Wednesday's <laughs> yeah. rain.
1: Presupposes what is trying to be demonstrated. <laughs> they reject they're like, no, absolutely not. Yeah. <laughs> that bit got that bit got me going. I was like, wow, these these guys really are fighting the fu- good fight. <laughs> these couldn't possibly yeah. be the same coins in my hallway. <laughs> But it's interesting
0: because it does suggest sort of you know, as I was saying before, that the the way that it's presented as autobiography and the way that mm-hmm. there's a lot of real names mixed in with the fiction makes it easier to apply like right. makes it easier to suspend disbelief and then to apply this to our world.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: It is interesting to think about the way that what language we have available affects how we think. Yeah and what ideas we can talk about if you haven't read 1984 i'm sure you've come across it right i think i've read it cool so <laughs> <Maybe>. the um <laughs> so the idea of slowly getting rid of like so basically the government gets rid of words mm. bans words until you forget those words basically says if you can't if you don't have the language to talk about freedom for example then you don't have a concept of freedom right you therefore can't do dangerous things like try to have more freedom. Like rebel or something. Government. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Get rid of the word, get rid of every word that means like rebellion, protest, etc. Mm-hmm. And then people won't do it, which is contradicted personally, I think, by the story of 1984 in mm. the people do try to rebel. But also I think it's contradicted here in that there are philosophers saying maybe they're the same coins <laughs> right. maybe there is a thing
1: so called a coin they that are exists, trying to conceptualize it. what they potentially shouldn't even know yeah even though it's
0: much 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 harder because they don't have the language for mm-hmm.
2: it
0: which is interesting when you think about it comes up in discussions of gender for example when people are like why are you making up words like you know, you're just making up words like gender fluid and gender queer and that's not a real thing. And it's like, it is a real thing. It's just that we didn't have the language for it before. Right. And there are ways of discussing, like more people's experiences can be put into words and sort of validated mm-hmm. when we have more words. I
1: think it also puts like a uh, like a time and date on things. Like, back. When, you know when people are like, oh, back in 17, blah, 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 no one was gay less people were gay and it's like no no it's, they just didn't have the words to, to describe their experience or the same mm. with gender fluidity like people were still gender fluid you know way back when it's just they didn't have the words or the words weren't used in mainstream or you know whatever mm. the case it took to get to this point where now you have descriptors and words to use that are applicable
0: yeah But at the same time, they would have thought of themselves
1: differently.
2: Mm.
0: Because, you know, we have these sort of concepts of sex and gender being different things and neither being binary. But if you live in a world where you sort of conceptualize both of them as the same thing, you can still have trans people. Yeah. You know, you can still have people because, again, if you're sort sort of 17th century, you've got the idea, you know, you've got religious thought and language being sort of the dominant culture and so you're going to say something like well my soul is male but my body is female or something Mm. and nowadays that's kind of an antiquated that's kind of an outdated way of framing it not some people still prefer that for their own sort Mm -hmm. of self-description but it's not the most common way of describing it but it isn't that the experience it's like the experience is different but it's different because you think of yourself differently right because your language is different mm-hmm. not because we suddenly invented transgender yeah like it's
1: not it's not like someone came up with the word transgender and then thought of a definition to fit it right <laughs> or like someone came up with the word transgender and then all of a sudden loads of people were like oh yes i suddenly realized that's me like yeah it was a thing before the word and Now you can just use it and like it's described better.
0: Yeah, but at the same time, there's going to be a lot of people who, before they had the word transgender, would have thought of themselves differently. But they might have thought, but the reason why the word is useful is because people would have been thinking of of themselves as broken or Mm. ill or delusional or some other unpleasant
2: thing. (laughs) Yeah, possessed. Let's bring religion into
1: (laughs) it.
0: Yeah, like if you've got this sort of. incongruence between your perception of yourself mm. and the way other people perceive you or the way you appear when you look in the mirror or whatever
2: mm-hmm. I,
1: totally you might think you're yeah possessed. I can see where that would come from it's because I yeah I think of it because you say like the soul feels different it's like well a lot of times when people thought their soul didn't match their body it's because their soul has been damaged or the soul is in the wrong place or the soul's been replaced by something else so yeah which <laughs> yeah if the language you've grown up with is mm. the language of souls and heaven and hell and mm-hmm.
0: demons and such of course that's going to be how you're going to understand your own experience right but yeah so uh in order to not go on a on a gender ranch today
1: <laughs> to bring that, this down a notch <laughs>
0: yeah that but that but you see what i mean mm-hmm. about yeah you know this idea of the coins that clearly the philosoph- you know it's not that the philosopher was playing word games right it's not that they're no. sort of sitting there putting words together and then figuring out a reality based on that it's that they are They've had this thought, you know, maybe they have lost some coins, who knows? Mm -hmm. They lose some coins and find some coins in the same place and they go, uh, and they are struggling to get to the thought, what if they're the same coins? Because the very phrase, the same coins, doesn't
1: exist in their language. Right, right. So that's fascinating. That is fascinating.
0: (laughs) This is Editing Esme, here to inform you that we had to split the Borges episode in two. So we will end the first part here, and you can join us next episode for a discussion of this short story in relation to the field of stylistics. In the meantime, as usual, transcripts and further information and the bibliography uh, will be available um, in the show notes at anchor.fm slash sparking connections or at Kim's website, pleaseholdfor.squarespace.com where you can also find links to find us elsewhere on the internet. If you have any questions or comments, then email us at sparkingconnectionspodcast at gmail.com or leave a comment below the episode.
2: See you next time.